0: I don't know about you, but lately I've had a hard time looking at the news. I don't care if it's TV or radio or online or print. For me, it's mostly online these days. But it's depressing. And it's bad enough when we look around and we see the atrocities, whether they are around the world or in our backyard. But as bad as those things are, and they are awful... What's really gotten me down lately is the tone and the focus in any one of the news sources that, it, that we have. And it doesn't matter, frankly, whether you're going to CNN or Fox News or anybody in between. It doesn't matter which outlet at all. Because it's all about I, me, and my, right? And you, whoever you are, well, you're probably the devil incarnate. Or, if you don't believe in the devil, devil, Hitler will do. And it seems like we believe that if we oppose someone, if they're wrong, then it's not only okay, but it's probably necessary to take a scorched earth policy toward them. Right? Whoever they are, whatever they believe, you've got to tear them to pieces, stomp those pieces into the ground... And then, probably, light the remains on fire with napalm. And it doesn't really seem to matter which side of any given issue, which group you represent, whoever is other is bad. And, honestly, it's more than a little bit disheartening. We can't seem to find any kindness in our hearts for people who we disagree with, for the other. We don't even try as Americans anymore, it feels like, to put ourselves in the other's shoes. And we automatically think that that other, politically, religiously, ethnically, sexually, whatever, is a terrible, awful person, because they disagree with us. And it's not, like I said, a characteristic of one group. It feels like everyone is behaving this way. And honestly, the hardest thing for me lately, is to see Christians who behave this way. If anyone ought to know better, it's us. And I think this passage today points in this direction. At, our, at its core, I think this issue, this posture, betrays one simple, pervasive sin. And that is selfishness. Everything is about me about what I think, and probably, more importantly, what I feel. You know, when I see something I don't like, I'll put it in terms that makes it look like it's not about me, but really, it's about me. And when I was here a few weeks ago, we looked at Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders, his plea and exhortation that it's better to give than to receive. And we saw how he modeled that kind of life and taught the church in Ephesus that they should do the same. So today, Paul lands in Jerusalem. We're in Acts 21. And we're going to see that spirit from that address in action. It's sort of a part two. The, bone, the meat on the bones of his argument, so to speak. I, I had entitled this message, Being the Body, <coughs> putting others first until yesterday, when I changed the title, simply to sacrifice, because I think that's what we see. So let's look at Acts 21, verses 15 to 26. We read this. After this, after they had left uh, Caesarea, we started our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Memnason. I have no idea how to pronounce that. Where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus, and one of the earliest disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem the believers received us warmly. The next day Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and repeated reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this they praised God. Then they said to Paul, "You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles, to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth to the reports about you, but that you are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from meat strangled, uh, of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. And then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them pray with me. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for your people that we are together your body. I pray that this morning we would see from the example of Paul how we are to live lives of sacrifice for one another. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. At its heart, this passage is about sacrifice. It's about the way that we as the church are to live with one another and towards one another and sacrifices everywhere in this passage. It's on the surface and it's deeper down. It's in the discussions of meat sacrificed to idols and Jewish sacrifices. Those are easy to spot. But also, it's about traveling with Paul and giving up preferences. It's about giving up one's legitimate freedoms for others when we go a little bit further. It's all in there. And today, as we arrive with Paul in Jerusalem, I want us to look at what happens through the lens of sacrifice. I want us to see the attitude Paul takes, the tone that he takes, if you will, in his life. Jesus says, We are to love God and love others. And this is my challenge today, right up front at the beginning. If we are Christians, if we are little Christs, we are to live like Jesus. If we take the attitude that Paul has, which does the same, that life of sacrifice, I want us to think of the difference that that will make in the world around us. If we actually put others first instead of ourselves, how would our world be different? start in verse 15. You see, being Christians, being the church is about sacrifice, and it is about a life being accompanied, not alone. Right away, we see Paul goes to Jerusalem with others, and you might be thinking, how is traveling with others and staying with others a sacrifice? You would say that, unless you're an introvert, or the parent of small children, or you're trying to herd the cats that are 22 middle schoolers on a field trip, or something like that right? But we're talking about more than inconvenience here. Remember, Paul knows he's going into danger. We saw this last week, right? He is arguing with the people, I have to go to Jerusalem, but I know what's coming. And they're telling him, no. Last week, we saw the wider church and prophets within the church and even Paul's companions saying, Paul, this is a bad idea. Don't go there. We know what's coming. So at the very least, I think there are three ways that this accompanying, this not-aloneness, if you will, is a sacrifice. You see, first, Paul moves toward the church in Jerusalem, the body of Christ there, even though it's not in his best interest. He knows bad days are ahead, and he doesn't choose the easy way for himself, and he could have. He absolutely could have. The church is more important to him than what he wants, than his convenience, than his happiness or his safety. The message of Jesus and the call of Jesus, the church of Jesus, is more important to Paul than Paul is important to Paul. Remember at verse 13 last week, he says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul says that, The name of the Lord Jesus, that shorthand. That shorthand for everything Jesus was and is and taught and every implication of his life and death and resurrection. It means that Paul's beliefs are not simply things in his head, they are not simply about himself and his relationship with God. They have implications in the real world for every relationship he has and that he is oriented toward others and we see this very clearly in Paul's life in Philippians chapter 1 verses 20 to 26 turn there for just a moment with me <coughs> in Philippians chapter 1 verse 20 we read i eagerly expect and hope that i will in no way be ashamed but will have sufficient will have sufficient courage so now that so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet which will I choose? I do not, I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, why do I look at this? See, in Philippians, Paul is writing from prison. It's after this episode that's going on right now in Jerusalem, after he's going to be arrested, as we're going to see next week. And as we look at this passage, we see that Paul says to live is Christ, to die is gain, no matter what he does in the here and now, it is for God, not for himself. And second, we see that Paul is living for the church. He is ministering for the body of Christ, not for himself. And then that body of Christ is to propel the message of Jesus forward out into the world. So everything about Paul's life is not about himself. It's about God and how God interacts with us. Paul is saying, it's not about me and Jesus. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. It's unthinkable. Paul. Being a Christian means being in relationship with others, coming alongside others. It means living with and for the body, not ourselves. The second way we see in this passage that sacrifice is wrapped up in this idea of accompaniment is by looking at those who are coming with Paul. I mean, think about this. They haven't been called to suffer. Paul has. The Spirit hasn't warned them, but still they come. And it's Paul's traveling companions. It seems like probably these are the seven guys mentioned in chapter 20, verse 4, plus Luke, at this point in the passage, he's saying we, as well as, quote, some of the disciples from Caesarea in verse 16. That's quite a few people that are coming along him, side him. And these are the very people who last week were trying to tell him, don't go. And still they come with. They sacrificed their time and their money. It was not cheap or easy to travel this way. Potentially their safety as well. Because in verse 14, we had read, we gave up and said, the Lord's will will be done. And we see there that the call of Jesus is to put others first, not ourselves, even when we think they're making a bad decision. The third way we see sacrifice in coming alongside another is this act of hospitality. <coughs> Nason from Cyprus is an early convert. Possible that he was one of the 120 in the upper room waiting for Pentecost, or he was one of those early converts from Peter's preaching. We don't know. But we do know that he opens up his home to at least 10, 12, 14 people. And he greets them warmly. He's hospitable. And in verse 17, we've read that the other believers in Jerusalem also greeted Paul and his fellows warmly. How is that sacrifice? Some of us love to entertain right? My wife is a party waiting to happen. But let's look at it realistically. Anytime you are hospitable, there is time, effort, money, inconvenience, whatever involved. All of those things are real. And it's even more than that. Hospitality is more than simply having a party or opening your home. It's a way of looking at and looking after the other, of loving the other, and no matter what. And I was reminded of the need for this by a very insightful article I read um, this week on ChristianityToday.com. Jen Pollock-Michael's article, Move Over Sex and Drugs, Ease is the New Vice, is not exactly about hospitality, at least not on the surface. But it's about lived life, about what I would call Withness. And she says this <clears throat> As Christians, we are rightly attuned to the hedonic temptations of the material life, the sex, the drugs, and the proverbial rock and roll. But reckless abandonment to the sensual pleasures of the body is not our only vice. So too is evasion of bodily life, which is, in one aspect, any attempt to squirm out of the tedium of being enfleshed, emplaced beings with obligations to love. It makes for a nagging question. What do we become when we're no longer willing to bother? And she goes on to talk a bit about modern life and about conveniences and how they change the way we view the world and interact with others. And then she comes to this challenging point. Here, then, is the quandary we're left with. As we continue to reduce the physical burden it takes to move through the world, and the efforts of our lives are often only as effortful as staring at our smartphones in the face, how will we galvanize the real will for love of God and neighbor? I am increasingly conscious of the bother of physicality. Increasingly conscious that there is no way to love others without it. My children have an unrelenting need for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I am, many days, irritated that I should have to feed them something other than ramen, despite their happy clamor for it. (laughs) At the end of a long day, my husband interrupts my well-laid plans for reading in bed with his puppy eyes of desire. Truth be told, marriage can find me tired and wishing to be left alone. My aging mother is growing forgetful, repeating tired stories over the phone when I'm under a deadline. She's a writer for a living. She will expect that we come again at Christmas, and more recently, a member of the extended family has chosen to die. I love the way that she puts that. And attending the funeral, all seven of us will cost us significantly in time and money. Secretly, I wish for a substitute to serve as our presence among the grieving. In theory, I want to love. In reality, I want it to tax me less." However, the arc of of the Christian story tells me that these collective affronts are a betrayal, not just of of neighbor, but of God himself. God entered the bother of embodied life. As a boy, he was subject to the slow agony of growing up. As a man, he was harangued by crowds, touched by lepers, and kept awake on sleepless, hungry nights in prayer. On the night of his arrest, Jesus took up the bother of the basin and towel, washing the feet of his disciples, even those of his betrayer. He carried that bother all the way to his execution for the sake of love. You see, accompanying others, being with, not being alone on our own, is at the heart of Christian belief and practice. It is a sacrifice, but it is necessary. Second, sacrifice means being accountable, not independent. This comes right alongside the first point. And we've seen this along the way at several points in Acts. In chapter 14, after the first missionary journey, Paul goes back to the church in Antioch that sent him. In chapter 15 is the Jerusalem Council. Paul and Barnabas go from Antioch to Jerusalem to deal with an issue of how to provide guidelines for Gentile believers. And at the end of the second missionary journey in chapter 18... Paul goes again to Jerusalem and Antioch. So it's not a surprise at the end of the third missionary journey that Paul ends up at Jerusalem again. Even if the Spirit had not told him, in this case, you're going to go and you're going to suffer, Paul has already established a pattern of accountability. He sacrifices his autonomy for the good of the church, for the good of Jesus' kingdom mission. Think about this. Okay, There's no internet there's no radio, there's no easy communication, information takes time, and Paul is on his own, going his own way, and can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, and no one would know the difference, except for really, he's not. From the very beginning, Paul has known that he's not the final authority. Christ is, and that he has chosen the church to express that authority. He charges the elders at Ephesus. We saw this last week. Why? Because we're all accountable. Accountable to Christ through the church. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says that he is the least among the apostles. He is one. He has authority, but he's the least. He puts himself under them. And guess what? He goes to Jerusalem to James, the brother of Jesus, one of the other apostles, the leader of the mother church, if there is a mother church At that time, and Paul presents himself to James and to the other elders. And the scene in verse 19, frankly, reminds me a bit of a modern missionary report. You know, they come in from the mission field and they tell us all the great things that God has done, and everyone rejoices, and there's worship here. And we need to remember that part of accountability is worship. After all, God is the point. But somehow, After the worship service, there's a church meeting, right? And we sing our songs and we make a show of how happy we are and then the truth comes out. That's all great, Paul, but we have concerns. And Paul isn't new. He's done this before. And I don't think he's terribly surprised at what happens next. But he still does it. He still goes to the trouble and no doubt the frustration of everything that's going on. They just don't get it. Really? This again? That's it? I'm going to go plant the second apostolic church of Jerusalem and fix this craziness. That's what I would have done. But why does he do it? Because as we saw in the first point, we're not alone. And when it comes to authority, to accountability, we aren't independent. And this is one of the biggest dangers we have as Protestants. Churches like ours. There's no outside authority that can say, hey, that's out of bounds. That behavior, that belief isn't orthodox. It's not what the Bible teaches. That behavior, that approach is not Christ-like. Or maybe you could do that, but it's probably not a good idea, and here's why. And sometimes we're so worried about being bound up by tradition that we miss that sometimes there are benefits. And sometimes we need to pay attention to what others are saying to make sure that we're on track. Look, Jesus left his followers with the church because we need one another. We need accompaniment. We need accountability, encouragement, and oversight, and we need to know that there's someone in our corner, someone that's able to not only be for us when things are going good, but when things are going bad, someone who can actually honestly tell us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. That can help us to grow and to put others first. That is what sacrifice is about. It is sacrifice, and it is necessary, and that leads us to Paul's third sacrifice. Paul is, throughout this passage, accommodating, not selfish. Look, we've got both a religious and an ethnic confrontation here, Jews and Gentiles, what's allowable and what's not. They, from whichever direction you want to say they, are different. And I can just hear sort of the mumbling in the background. I'm not sure that we should be doing that. God can't possibly bless that or be in that. But Paul is asked to go out of his way to accommodate Jewish believers, even though he's being slandered. People are telling lies about him and his ministry. The rumors abound. Paul says to abandon Moses. Again, that shorthand. Abandon the law. Abandon the very things that make us who we are as the people of God. Don't circumcise. Don't keep kosher. Paul, you're telling us to compromise with the world, to use 21st century church language, to capitulate to our heathen culture. Dr. Darrell Bach, in his commentary on Acts, notes that the word translated to turn away here is apostasin, It's defection, or the word that we use for apostasy. It's a rejection of the faith. That's what he's being accused of. And I love how NT Wright captures this moment for Paul. And this is what he says in his commentary. Are these the Christians here in Jerusalem, Paul must have thought? With friends like this who needs enemies. Of course I don't do that, he will have wanted to say. I don't know who's made that up, but it's nonsense. There is all the difference in the world between telling Gentile converts that they don't need to become Jews in order to be full members of God's people and drawing the further conclusion that therefore Jews should abandon their ancestral traditions and customs as well. That's something Paul has neither said nor done. Remember, this is the same Paul who writes 1 Corinthians when he was in Ephesus not so long ago. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you can turn there, verses 20 to 23, we read a very famous passage. Paul says, backing up to verse 19, though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law so as to win those who have not, those not having the law to the weak i became weak to win the weak i have become all things to all people so that they that by all possible means i might save some i do this all for the sake of the gospel that i might share in its blessings what is paul saying here look i haven't stopped being a jew but I have adapted my ministry to bring Christ to people who need him, whether they are Jews or whether they are Gentiles. The issue is not my Jewishness or the gentiles non jewishness it's that I am under the law of God, the law of Christ that doesn't mean I ask people to give up their traditions, their customs. It means that I put Christ first he is at the center and with i'm with the when i 'm with the Jews. I act like them so as not to offend them. And when I am with the Gentiles, I live like them. I honor their customs as far as I can. Let's get really brass tacks here. We don't have a Jew-Gentile problem here in modern 21st century Western church. Not usually, although anti-Semitism does seem to be on the rise again in our culture. But we have other issues. This is an, an issue that translates ethnicity and religion, but incorporates both. <clears throat> Look at our Aurora campus. There are believers who are refugees from Africa, from Iraq, from Burma. All of these people have very different values and customs than we do. And the El Camino campus, which worships there, worships in a different language, and has different cultural concerns and different issues and we are one church. Pastor Travis and I have talked about this quite a bit and one of the things that he deals with when he preaches is look, the American point of view, especially the Anglo-American point of view is one of autonomy of individual responsibility. That's the way we look at the world. But the African point of view is to look at the world from a lens of power dynamics. Who has power? How do I get power? How does that work? And then there's the Asian point of view, which is all about honor and shame, right? And so Pastor Travis has to look at this and say, how do I preach a sermon to all three of those different ways of looking at the world, and they are literally different ways of looking at the world? and doing it as being one church. And that's exactly what's going on here. It has become a cliche that 11 a.m. on Sunday is the most racially segregated hour of the week here in America. And it breaks my heart. The church, after all, is not a place, but the people of God. And Revelation 7 tells us that every tongue and every nation will be praising God and that it's not just everybody has to do it at this point. It's the picture is given as the white-robed people of God, the church. In Galatians and Colossians, Paul tells us that we are all equal before God and that our socioeconomic status or our ethnic identity or our gender, none of that is our defining identity. Jesus is. Paul doesn't say that those identities don't exist because otherwise that 1 Corinthians passage we just read wouldn't have been written. He is saying that those identities should not, must not, divide us. The other is no longer other, and we must sacrifice for them. They are us. The church should lead in our country when it comes to racial reconciliation when it comes to race relations. We should absolutely not tolerate the fact that people use the church, use Christianity to reinforce bigotry and intolerance. And the truth of the matter is, and as largely white people, we have to admit this, we have. Entire denominations in our country were started over the slave trade. And well before America was America, in the 17th century, Anglicans, as they come over here, they, there is on record Anglicans making decisions of, okay, an African slave becomes a believer and is baptized. That doesn't mean they get to be set free. It's in writing. And why would that be in writing? Because they knew that it flew in the face of Paul's teaching and his example, they knew and they were trying to justify their own economic interests ahead of not just the human interests of others, but against their own brothers. And it was a sin. Full stop. And we don't get to write off entire groups of people because they're not like us, because they think or worship or vote differently. That is not Christian. And Paul accommodates. He sacrifices, in this case, literally. The leaders in the church of Jerusalem have a plan for Paul. Look, we know you're not what they say you are, so here's what you do. Demonstrate your Jewishness. for Jewish Christians, they've taken a vow. And <clears throat> the, the context clues lead scholars to believe this is probably a Nazarite vow. The head shaving is sort of the clue for us there. And there's some debate about what Paul's participating means. We don't know quite if he's just coming alongside and participating in that, or if he is um, doing a more regular purification because he's been in Gentile lands. But number six gives the rules from the Nazarite vow. And it tells that you can't have anything to do with grapes, not wine, not seeds, not anything. And that you can have no alcohol, can't be around, much less touch a dead body, and you don't get to have a haircut. Okay, for whatever the period of time that is. And when they're done, they're brought to the t- tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple. And they have to bring several things for offerings at that point a year old male lamb, a year old ewe lamb, a ram, grain offerings, drink offerings, and a basket of unleavened loaves, thick ones and thin ones. Then, after that's done, the head is to be shaved. Now, we don't, have to go, we don't have time to go into the ins and outs of everything here. But what I do want you to see for today is that all of those things mean it wasn't cheap to do this. And Paul is asked to sponsor or to pay for four lambs and four ewes and four rams And grain and drink offerings, plus four baskets of bread. And that's minimum, because if he's being asked to join in the Nazarite vow, that makes it five, right? And the Jewish historian Josephus, who writes only a few decades after Paul, explains that what they asked Paul to do was a common act of piety for Jews. So Paul has been asked by the Jewish leadership of the Jerusalem church to show his Jewish piety. And some people argue that Paul shouldn't have done that. That he's being pushed towards legalism. And maybe they have a point, because as we're going to see next week, the plan doesn't work. But there is a logic to this plan. By doing this, Paul is undermining the false narrative about himself. And he's actively living out what he claims in that 1 Corinthians passage. Look, I've got questions. I'd love to ask Paul, okay, why did you do this? Why submit yourself to this? You know that you don't have to. And I believe that his response would probably be, of course I don't have to do it, but I do it for Christ, because I love Christ and I love them, and I am helping them to grow, and it only costs me money. And I can point them more clearly to God by showing that I love them too, and that I haven't abandoned my people And he would probably point to communion as the Passover reimagined and say, we haven't abandoned this story anyway. And for us today, I think this means being willing to take on things that we don't necessarily agree with or need. This can be church structures or styles of worship, and it may be that we're willing to participate in something foreign, perhaps uncomfortable, Notice I did not say sinful. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, what are we willing to give up for the brother or sister who sees things differently? Are we willing to sacrifice on their behalf? We ought to at least entertain the idea. What are we willing to endure? Are we really willing to try to see from the other's point of view and look, this is a two-way street. We see this because the leaders at church in Jerusalem reaffirm the fact of what they have already said to the Gentile believers. Look, you don't have to become Jews. What you do have to do is stay away from food offered to idols, no strangled, uh, meat, no blood, no sexual immorality. Accommodation doesn't mean capitulation. That's not what's going on here. We are to stand for the truth of the gospel. That is clear. As the saying goes, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things love. Finally, sacrifice is active. It's not disinterested. Look, this accommodation plan, Paul could have said, hey, that's a great idea, let me think about it. But he doesn't he does it. This entire passage. Nowhere do we see the content of the gospel in this entire passage. Nowhere does Luke record that Paul defends himself or his propositions of what the gospel is, the belief that he has promoted. And that's what we would expect, right? Somebody falsely accuses me of abandoning the law, abandoning my people, the first thing I'm going to do is say, wait a minute, I didn't say that. And it's possible, maybe even probable, that Paul did defend himself because, you know, he meets with James and the elders and we're, we're given a couple of sentences and my guess is that probably this was a day-long meeting. I've been around the block once or twice. I know how church meetings go. But that's not what Luke focuses on, Right? Why is he doing this? Because he's already established what the gospel is, and here in this passage, Luke knows that words alone are simply not enough. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is not simply a set of ideas about who God is, or it's not just you thought you knew who God was, but you got it wrong, so believe this right stuff and everything's okay. And sometimes we're so afraid that people will believe that somehow being good or doing good things will save them that we don't talk about or encourage doing good at all. And I think that's highly problematic at best, and heresy at worst. As James says, this very same James who Paul is talking to, a faith without works is dead. And many times, people put Paul on one side and James on the other and say they are in conflict, and it's just not true. In this passage, James and Paul are both involved. And Paul shows his faith by participating in something he doesn't have to because he loves Jesus and he loves the church. And Paul actively participates in the body for the body and not himself. And that's the heart of sacrifice. And that's at the end of the article by Jen Pollock-Michael that I quoted earlier. She says this. As the incarnation attests... The love of God, born on his back as a weighty wooden cross, was the corporeal love of deed and truth. As Ju- uh, Julie Canless writes, the incarnation is the rule, not the exception. God enters into the world and engages with us on creation's terms. He uses ordinary created things to bless us, save us, minister to us. Our ordinary humanity is the place he has chosen to meet with us. Following Christ, then, I am radically called to the brother, to the bother of the material world with its attendant burdens and griefs. Love, in both its everyday gestures and grand flourishes, is the radical embrace of burden, not the rejection of it. I don't know that I can fully recover from my entitlement to ease, she says. I am not, after all, giving up my iPhone." But perhaps I can remember that love, patterned after God's own self-giving, is bent on inconvenience and cost. Perhaps I can temper my expectations for the effortless life I think I am owed. Perhaps I can remember, when feeling especially put out by needing to show up in the world, and not by proxy, that I am supposed to love with my body, as God did with us. And so, I want to close with one last exhortation from Paul in Ephesians 4, chapter, or Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. If you would stand with me um, as I read this before the final song. Paul says this to the Ephesian church. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and